We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you an old friend we've just recently reconnected with. Lisa Mitchell is the principal of Living a Global Lifestyle. And when we met way back, she was a VP at Wells Fargo, supporting women and men, families abroad with their financials. And she since then has had an incredible journey and continues to work supporting global nomads. So I'm excited to have her on and tell her story and share a little bit about how we can do the same. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. And it does seem like I'm trying to remember. It was a Falco. country. Yes. Uh, oh, was it at Falco? I think it was at Falco, though. Oh, well, actually, no, you know what? You're right. We met somewhere else. And then we ran into each other at Falco. Yes, yes. We, we I think we met at a conference, but I can't remember. Was it Vietnam or? Global somewhere? Summit of Women. Yes, you are good. Yes. It yes. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, it was in one of my favorite countries. So I should know that. Thank you for the introduction. So yeah, I mean, I have been, I feel, living a global lifestyle and, and committed to it since, I don't know, I can't think of a time when I wasn't. Anyone who's known me for a long time knows that as a, I was that kid who was always talking about moving overseas and living abroad. And, you know, my friends always remind me of that. I would always talk about that and went on to do it. Went to went to college and only studied international courses, which is coming back to bite me because with all this going on in the world now, everything is the state versus the federal government. I'm kind of like, well, maybe I shouldn't have slept through that 8 a.m. domestic politics plot. So <laughs> you and me both, sister. <laughs> you and me both. Exactly. So I only know international politics. So did that and graduated in three and a half years with the goal of always going to work abroad, live abroad. And I I was thinking about it at 21 years old. That's what I was doing. Living in London, working. This is before Canary Wharf. Well, I'm dating myself, but this was kind of cotton haze, living for, working for a top five bank and working on their version of Wall Street. And then when I wasn't working, traveling all over Western Europe, then that led to coming back and going to business school. I went to Thunderbird, the international business school. I was like, wow, a business school where people think only like me. Yeah, that's where I need to go. And again, ended up in financial services, a big bank, Citibank, global bank. And then was kind of trying to figure out what I should do. And my mentor said, well, there's this cool little business that maybe you should talk to the guy who runs it. And it turns out that it was banking for expat financial services. And that was, okay, again, I'm dating myself. That was over 20 years ago. And I look at now. So when I I did that at Citibank, did some other things at Citibank, then at Wells Fargo, ran their international personal banking branch. Again, financial services, we didn't even really, we had a few digital nomads then, but really the employees of global corporations. And then in between those times, of course, becoming an expat again, then the financial crisis, actually before the financial crisis happened, I had moved to London and during that, the financial crisis happened. So I was a banker, so wasn't going to get a job. 
So I moved back and then still was like, "Uh, you know, if I was 10 years younger, I'd move to China because I'd managed an office in Hong Kong. I'd been going to China since 2002, going to Asia longer than that. And I said, you know what? Hey, I'm going to do it anyway. So because I also thought it was a, a good opportunity to build some new skills. And, you know, I kind of asked her, I said, well, you're really good besides it talking, but speaking and teaching. So I decided I looked around and I said, I took, uh, got certified and I said, I knew I only wanted to teach adults. I knew I only wanted to teach executives and ended up spending four years in Shanghai, again, for global corporations, mostly teaching their executives the soft skills so that they can compete you know, most of them work for Western global corporations. So that was an interesting time to do that. And I had been tinkering with working on a book, but in China, that was really not, you know, with the internet, it was really hard to kind of do that kind of research. So I really limited to that, to speaking to people because there were expats everywhere. And again, the overlying theme is money is still important. Managing your financial services, whether you're a digital nomad, whether you're an expat, it's still something that you have to do. And even after, I don't know, it's kind of like 30 years, Heidi, people still, like I, I was teasing with, with an old friend that I'm on Facebook a lot answering questions because I feel like I have a responsibility to, you know, with my knowledge and background, I can help. People still move, move overseas and don't think about their finances. And finance has changed a lot post-2010, post-2014 with FACTA and FBAR. And I see a lot of people, especially now with everything that's going on with the virus and everything else, they're like, I want to leave. I want to get out of town. And when I look at their list of things, finances is rarely on the list or if it's on the list, it's in a very general term. And I saw what happened with, which I knew was going to happen with the virus and a lot of experts. I was actually in Asia right before this. A lot of expats had a reality check. And my company, Living a Global Lifestyle, it started as kind of the book. And I thought, well, I'll come home and do seminars. But, you know, there are a lot of Facebook groups that no one is really, maybe now people are talk, speaking about the realities of living abroad, but people still glossing over. When I look at like their list of things that what they're worried about, I'm like, <laughs> no one living abroad, that's not even going to, you know, that's not even on your radar or it shouldn't be a big part of your radar. So that's kind of where I am and what I'm committed to. And that's my story. I love it. And I think, it, you know, you're positioned in a place that's really, really critical. And you're absolutely right in that a lot of people don't take the, you know, they don't look at their finances other than how do I get from point A to point B in terms of how to get settled in another country and what does that mean? Recently, I was interviewing uh, someone who is the head of an organization called Insured Nomads. And similarly, Ooh. a lot of people don't think about, okay, how, what happens if I'm not covered? You know, it's like, does my insurance cover me there? Those are those things that even when you're moving within your own country, general mobility, a lot of times those are the things that catch you. Um, I think about it, you know, we move fairly regularly. We seem to be master movers. We finally figured out that the best way to move is actually have minimal amount of stuff and actually put everything in storage. So we've been, the last two moves we've done have been to furnished homes, which it, you know, it has its advantages and disadvantages. Certainly it's nicer to have your own things, but you really identify what is absolutely critical to have with you when you're doing that kind of a move. 
that obviously works short term. It's not it's not a long term solution. But when you are hypermobile, like we have been recently, that's something to take into consideration. On the finance piece, you mentioned two different terms that it would be helpful if you would just expand on a little bit. The F bar and what was the other one you mentioned? Sure. Because F-bar. I think that that's important to, for people to understand what what it was that you're that those are the things you're saying people get caught up on. They haven't thought about well if they don't know even know what that is. That's a obviously a good starting point. Absolutely, Heidi. I agree with you. And actually, we get caught so caught up in the acronyms. I had to look them up again myself. So FAT, F-A-T-C-A, because I think there's actually a FACTA with the F-A-C-T-A, is the Foreign Account Tax Compliant, Compliance Act. What this basically is, and why it was a game changer, is it gives foreign financial institutions the ability and the right, and it's a requirement by the United States government, Treasury Department, to certify that they're U.S. citizens and they have bank accounts. How this has really impacted U.S. citizens, U.S. expats, is the the compliance around it for financial institutions is so much. They've decided, we don't need this. Hey, and they're not opening bank accounts for U.S. citizens overseas. Now, obviously, if you're going to work overseas and you don't know about this and you can't open a bank account and you're getting paid in a local currency, you're going to have some issues. So it's really a challenge. And then there are some privacy issues around it. I believe one person in the United Kingdom is, I believe it's is suing. So there's some other issues around there. Then there's FBAR, which is the Foreign Bank Account Report, which is, again, a form. And it's basically, if you have, want to get this right, more than $10,000 in a day, you have to you have to file it. And again, I mean, there are a lot of issues, but the long and short of it, which I try and focus on, so many people don't even know about this. If I put this on Facebook in a Facebook group, I'll get 10 hits going, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this. And that is really, right? If you don't acknowledge something and you don't know about it, you can't fix it. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I knew about the two policies. I just didn't know the names of them. So no, 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 that's okay. That's good. So I don't know if you, I mean, this, so this, obviously we have a very mixed audience from all over the world. So this only applies to Americans, but what about Americans that have dual nationality? Does it apply in the same way or is that something? Well, it's U.S. citizens and permanent residents usually. So that's Mm -hmm. green card holders, which is somebody told me in Singapore last year, oh, now I see why a lot of green card holders gave up their green card. My husband did that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of he said, "Oh, I get it now, Lisa. That's why they did that." Dual citizens. I'm not exactly sure. I'm waiting my way through the the two chapters of the book, hardest to write, or taxes and investments. But I do believe that I've re- you know the U.S. is like dual citizen, schmool citizenship. You're a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. right? U.S. citizen, U.S. Social Security number. We want your taxes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Right. I have heard of people. Let's say if you're in France, because that's where a lot of people have also been complaining, you just don't tell them about the U.S. part. You would register as a French, but I'm not certain about that. And I don't know how that would work out for certain people. For sure. Yeah. For sure. No, I'm yeah. not going to not going to make you make enough. a statement people are going to hold you to. And but yeah. it, but it is a tricky situation. And I think we're seeing more and more of that. I myself, I have, you know, dual nationality and I've certainly come up with, you know, come up upon both of these new regulations sure. as they came into account while I was living in Sweden, and it was all of a sudden, you know, the banks were saying, hey, well, I mean, I already had the accounts. And they said, well, 
you know, you need to declare all of these different and even things that weren't necessarily I was a, a benefactor of the account, but I wasn't necessarily the, it, the it primary. A, so, yeah, wide range, you know, yeah. and, and actually what what was happening for a lot of my peers that were working for companies, their companies were saying, we can't have you as a signee on the account right. anymore. And it right. was a corporate account, but they were like, we, you know, we just don't want to deal with the red tape. And the banks were saying, sorry, we won't open an account for you. So it was a big problem for expats who even were well established in those countries. And that's actually a very good point, Heidi. Something else that, you know, there's several organizations, Falco, ACA, ARA, that, you know, really advocate on behalf of U.S. citizens living abroad. And this is one issue that they have talked about is, hey, our career opportunities. If I'm a senior executive and I need signatory over an account or any other, because it's not just, you know, I tried to be very general. It's not just bank account. It can be a problem. Corporations Mm -hmm. say, well, why am I going to hire you when I have to deal with this? Or kind of there are a lot of women, you know, maybe they're on a joint bank account. Maybe they don't have their own job, but they don't have, or they don't have their own bank account. If they're on the joint bank account with, let's say, their husband or, or partner, from then the IRS wants to know about that bank account. You know, it's fraught with problems. Again, it kind of hit people. And I think that from my standpoint, looking at it as a regulator, right, because I remember getting a lot of calls about it when I was a banker. And I'm like, hey, guys, it doesn't work like that. The regulators tell banks what to do. And then banks, like my former division, we try and put it into something palpable for our customers. I don't remember a lot of asking banks, well, how do you feel about this? Mm-hmm. Or, or even asking, it seems, some of these organizations that advocate for U.S. citizens living abroad. I don't remember a lot of that. So that was also a big problem. It was also a big issue. You know, it's hard. It's hard for U.S. citizens to get on the radar of Washington. Well, absolutely. I mean, I remember, I think back in the day when, when we were at that FACO event, I mean, it was probably over 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. But I remember having a conversation about there was over 9 million at that point, 9 million Americans that were living abroad as expats. And that's not just people. And, and the thing is, they were perceived by the IRS as they were trying to, their purpose was tax evasion. And in most cases, right. it was because they were had they had a partner overseas, or they were there for work. I mean, they were there for legitimate reasons. And a lot of them didn't have the option to leave. If you're married to your partners in another country, your kids are in that country, you can't really just sort of pick up and come back to the US when your kids have never even lived in the US and they don't want to come back. They, you know, for them, it's not coming back. For them, it would be leaving home. So there's all these other complications. But the perception by the IRS is that Everybody that's away is, you know, is there for tax evasion purposes, which is ridiculous because in most cases, they're just normal people that are just trying to live their lives. They just happen to be off of U.S. soil. And so I'm curious, I mean, obviously, you're doing a lot of work now to support that lifestyle and both for the people that are expats for work and those that are for expats for other reasons. What are some of the systems that do work? I mean, the, that's obviously one of the systems that doesn't really work that well and is a, is a real challenge for people. But are there, for example, banks, maybe U.S. banks that help support, that fill in that gap that support Americans that are abroad? That's a, that's a really good question. Before I answer, I want to just bring up some good points and say, 
You're absolutely right. It's another reason I'm really big on education advocacy. For instance, that 9 million number from 10 years ago hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So we know that can't be true, right? We know that can't be true. And then education, it's not just the IRS. I think it's the government. There's this whole movement against people in the U.S. are called homelanders versus people that live overseas. I think a whole educating and knowledge of the real lifestyle of people living overseas and why they're there and what they're doing. I I think they seem to think like if we're in Paris, we're sitting around eating croissants and wearing berets, which of course is not true. Getting back to what systems work well, I think one I wanted to mention is voting abroad. I think that's something that works very well. I saw that happen when Obama was running. I was living in London. I think that that works really well. I think I have a, and I have a running list of resources for expats. I'm trying to put it together. There's always now in this age of fintech, some fintech company that's opening. The big banks still have their divisions, HSBC. I think it really depends on what, I mean, there's TransferWise, there's Revolut in terms of financial institutions. There's in the UK, there's Moniz, which is, is always, has been pro opening bank accounts for immigrants. I think it also depends on what your needs are and what you're looking for. I like a full bank because I like safety and security, right? There are some people who they like a financial app, right? I think the thing to remember is what you're looking for and what country are you going to, right? So my experiences in London are very different than my experience in China because China at that time was still kind of emerging. It does not have a convertible currency, right? The RMB is not convertible. There are also currency limits on how much you can move, how much you can exchange, and how much you can move every day and every year. We didn't have that living in Europe. So that will also guide, you know, if you want to be at a Citibank HSBC, or if you want to be at a a TransferWise or a Revolut. And I have, like I said, I have a a whole list. Also something to remember about the fintech companies, which I love. And fintech is financial technology companies. Fintech really started out of the ashes of the financial crisis in 2008. So it's a young industry. And often, I I can't think of a country I've heard, they need to have some type of banking license or financial license. Or they need to, and in a lot of countries, like the US, it's, it's very challenging. They partner up with a bank. So I also want people to think of that also it's not always a, a panacea. It's, it's not always a panacea, right? I, just like living overseas is not always a utopia. It's the same thing with financial services. Again, the keys are figuring out, doing all this pre-departure, right? You don't want to get to your, like you said, get to the country and go, oh, how am I going to move money? Which is, I heard that, I mean, again, I could have been a millionaire at answering that question in China. People go, oh, I'm here and my Chase loan is due tomorrow. Okay, does Chase take RMB? No. Well, then you're going to exchange it. Okay, and you know, and then and then they say, and by the way, I don't want to pay any fees. I'm like, well, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> good luck with that. Exactly. So again, it you know, everyone personal finance is just that personal, yeah. right? I also wanted to you you mentioned insurance, which is of course become another. Huge, huge issue. I was one of those people who traveled for 25 years, never had anything happen. Living in China, had something happen, $30,000 bill. 
that luckily <laughs> I paid. My insurance company paid, but I had to pay first. A couple years later, again, nothing ever happened. Like 2017, fell in Bangkok and cracked my elbow. So I hear a lot of people say, oh, I don't need insurance. Yes, you do. And even if you didn't, with this new virus, countries are already cracking down. They've always known the situation of health insurance in the United States. I think it would be very difficult to travel somewhere and they don't ask for proof of insurance. Mm -hmm. So that's something I think actually that's a, a a good thing. So that's something that I would say is kind of also working well or that people definitely, and that people need to be in tune to, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there's so many different factors, and, and all of them can really be unwelcome surprise, unfortunately, absolutely. that can really sort of ruin you. And in some ways, the other thing that I think is worth mentioning, is when you think about sort of the mobility piece, there's always the return mobility when you are re-entering your own country. And I remember the biggest surprise for us, which we had not expected after moving back to the U.S., was we had been living overseas so long that although we had carried a bank account the entire time, we had moved all of our credit cards overseas to our accounts there. And when we came back, we had no credit history. They wouldn't give us credit. They gave us a credit card with a $1,000 limit, which is completely useless, by the way. Thousand dollar limit will buy you, you know, a week and a half of groceries in California. That's it. And and I was, you know, I was here with two kids trying to get them to and from school, move into a new place, and get established. So, needless to say, it was a challenge. What are some of your tips on maybe managing a credit and your credit history as you're managing your global mobility? I mean, now of course I will never cancel my credit card. I'll just hold on to it and do small transactions to keep it going. But I mean. I was surprised because I had been carrying, for example, my student loans the entire time. And that was the only reason that they, you know, gave me any kind of credit history because they said, oh, well, yeah. And this was, I'd had the same account, same bank account for 40 years. And they still said, oh, you have no credit history because I didn't have a credit card there anymore, but they were able to see my student loans. But anyway, <laughs> so, yeah. so anyway. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that, because I think that's something that, that is uh, one of those other unwelcome surprises that we often experience. Heidi, that, thank you for mentioning that. That is absolutely one of the most, again, I could be a millionaire is talking about credit. There's a chapter on it in the book, and I always speak about it. I was talking about it this weekend on Facebook. So just a couple of things. Credit histories currently do not move with you. I moved to London. I'm a brand new 18-year-old kid. Credit histories, credit scores aren't global. Now, there are a couple of fintech companies that are doing a good job, especially with people coming into the U.S., that, of course, you need a credit history and you don't have one. But for expats, what happened to you is you became credit invisible. That's a term. Your credit becomes very important. So U.S. credit histories and U.S. credit scores do not travel, okay? So you should keep them open. If you have your MasterCard, your Visa, they're international credit cards. You can use them overseas. You definitely need to keep them open. You had your student loans, which is considered a trade line. So you want to keep as many trade lines as you can open. U.S. address, U.S. phone number, which are gray areas for some people. I always say keep them open or have a U.S. address. I think I've had my mobile number for nearly 20 years because they're identifiers. Well, you can't vote without a U.S. address. Right, 
Well, that's true. That's true. Well, if you maybe if you do it, if you're overseas, you might be able to use your overseas address. Well, no, you're right, because you need to be linked to a state. You have to be linked to a state. Yeah, I I had to to change my state to to my mother's house when we were living overseas. Yeah, you have to be linked to a state. Sorry about that, which is a whole other with the taxes and the state taxes, which people also forget about as well. Going back to you just said something important. You used your mother's house. I'm not a big advocate of using family because identity theft is ripe. And although that's number one, and I have a chapter on that for people who live a global lifestyle, especially if you have children, I always advise people to have an online management company, which you can, which they'll send you your mail online, they scan it, and then they'll send packages for whoever you want overseas. There also might be something mail that you're getting, you don't want your family to see. I always say that, (laughs) right? I always say that. So those are kind of the basics that I speak to people in about credit is that U.S. credit histories do not travel. And be careful, you spoke about returning. I call that financial repatriation. And I have a whole list of things that pe- it's kind of begin your journey, even though you don't know what your international journey will be with the end in mind. Eventually, we have to come home or we go to another country to transition. And you're right. There are a lot of U.S. citizens, Americans who come back and they find out they are credit invisible. Also, you should be checking your U.S. credit history. You should check U.S. credit history and credit score. Check it before you leave. And now you can check it once a year. You can go to annualcreditreport.com. They had had some issues with people who were overseas. You should use a VPN. If you can't, I believe they have a manual paper process. But that's something that you should be doing, not only for credit reasons, but because of identity theft. So those are just a few things that you can do in terms of your credit. But you're right. It's a huge, huge issue. People don't know that credit histories don't travel. U.S. credit scores don't travel. The other thing I want to caution people about is getting credit in a foreign country. When I was in China, that was a cool thing to do, right? Oh, I want an RMB credit card. I'm like, okay, can you, how is your Chinese? Can you read the application? Do you know about, (laughs) which I couldn't, I had to get a colleague to to translate. Do you know about the consumer credit rule? I'm also credit trained. Do you know the consumer credit rules in this country? In the least, if you don't pay your bills and people always think, oh, I'll pay my bills. Like I said, I was sick. I was sick for 10 days, right? I'm single. I don't have anybody to physically pay my bills, even though I may have the money. In the Middle East, you can go to jail for not paying your bills. So I always caution people about getting, that's another one that is a lot of, oh, I'll get a local credit. You don't need it. All you need to do, right? So let's say whatever bank or whatever credit card you have and you're moving overseas, make sure it has no foreign transaction fees, right? No foreign exchange, no foreign transaction fees. Because people always say, oh, I need a local credit card to avoid the fees. Well, the credit card you already have, tell them you're moving overseas and you want to avoid the fees. You want a car, do they have a product where you don't pay any foreign transaction fees, no foreign exchange? And there's tons of them. Most banks, uh, all the big banks have it now. Yeah. So that's another, those are just a couple of things that you, you want to make sure you're doing. But credit is, it's a big one. I have a whole chapter on it. And like I said, there are a few companies that are addressing it, but they're really addressing it at the credit bureau level. Because the other thing is banks, like a U.S. bank really can't interpret a foreign credit report and vice versa. There are a couple of big banks, HSBC lets you have, well, they used to, I don't know if they're still doing this, 
internal credit report. American Express has a global transfer program with their card. Those are the, the two big ones. Diners Club used to have a big one. But yeah, and financial repatriation is a big one. A lot of people get a big shock. Credit and kind of, you know, have they saved enough? How much has changed? But credit's the big one. Because yeah. you can become a credit invisible very easily. And you got you have to keep an eye on your U.S. credit report and U.S. credit score even while you're abroad. Absolutely. For and sure. don't clo- also don't close your bank accounts. It's becoming difficult with the new Know Your Customer KYC requirements. If you didn't have a U.S. address, that's a key one. Oh, I've been living overseas for five years. That's another one. Mm-hmm. And, and with the using family's address to a lot of uh, financial institutions, brokerage firms, they want proof that you're actually living there. It's become a great area, but most professionals in the, the global mobility space, most providers, they say keep an address. And I agree with that. Keep an address with an online virtual mailbox, digital mailbox is what they call it. So that. yeah, so you just mentioned that service and I was unaware of that. And so are there multiple services? I would imagine there's there's uh, there, several, there but are there particular yeah, I have, uh, providers? I have a list. Earth Class Mail is good. A lot of people use that. I think another one is called Virtual Mailbox. I have an, a, another list people can, uh, it's not on my website right now. I'm trying to figure out the best way to get that, but they can always email me at info at livingagloballifestyle.com. Always happy to give people those resources. Especially a lot of people, well, we don't know what's going to happen with school systems, but I see a lot of people hoping they can move abroad in August. So if anyone needs to contact me, they can. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting point. Right now, a lot of people are now, a lot of bigger companies are saying, okay, you can continue to work remotely for the rest of, you know, for in perpetuity. We now know that it works for people to do remote work and we'll figure out the systems. And some of them are even, you know, giving their employees a certain amount of money in order to set up their virtual office and whatnot. So the opportunity is there to say, okay, pick a spot in the world. Where do I want to be? And sort of, you know, what does that mean? Obviously, they'll probably still be paid in their native, you know, wherever the company is based, which is in a lot of ways, it's an advantage. But then, of course, you have sort of currency conversion and where, you know, how far does your, even from state to state, how far does your paycheck go? And will your company change your salary based on where you're based? There's, I mean, there's a lot of different issues coming up there that potentially people may be needing to consider. Is that something that you advise on? Or how do people work with you if they want to look at, okay, now I have the opportunity, the world is open to me. What are the things? Is there a checklist? Is there, you know, how do I work with someone like you to make sure that I've ticked all the boxes and taken everything to, into account? Good question. <laughs> I think I'm still trying to figure that out because usually I've been doing it through social media and writing my content. And then at one point I had seminars, which I'm hoping to do, which I'm hoping to start up again this summer. The And a lot of it so far has been free. What I re- Again, my real focus is always the finance because no one ever talks about that and people always forget that. But so far that's what I've been doing. A lot of trying to really now pull all my content together in some eBooks, not just the books. And I, I do have some checklists actually, but I'm really trying to pull that together and hope to do the seminars again. In terms of consulting, working one-on-one, I have done that. I mean, I've, I did that in China. Haven't done it so much in the US because I haven't had the time, not to say I won't do it again. But 
you know, at this point, you know, there's oh, it's so it's interesting you say that because I see so much disinformation out there. Maybe I need to put more thought in how I want to decide this seminar. So there's something else I want to do. You made a good point with the working remote kind of how with digital nomads. I think one thing people have to I hear a lot of companies saying you can do what you want. Countries are going to react to that. Remember, like I was on a call the other day about taxes and with a digital nomad and the advice they were giving people is you don't want to live anywhere, especially for U.S. citizens. Remember, we're taxed on worldwide income. U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You don't want to live in a foreign country long enough if you're going to be a digital nomad to be a tax resident and to have tax issues. And I think countries, especially in Asia, where I, I spend a lot of time, they're cracking down on that. When I was in Bali last year, I was going to conferences, so I had my laptop. Oh, are you going to be doing work here? Are you going to be working on a project? You're going to see a lot of that, especially in these digital nomad havens like Chiang Mai, Bali. I don't think that digital nomads, all, well, so you'll have two things. You'll have the countries cracking down. What are you doing here? Because you... A lot of times, technically, people are on tourist visas, right? The health is another one, right? So they're going to be asking you, you know, what, what kind of health care do you have? What, do you have a health certificate? And then I don't think digital nomads always think about the impact that we are having on the local countries, right? So let's say we're getting paid in U.S. dollar, but we're in, let's take Bali, right? It's cheaper. What did someone call it? A digital nomad called it geographic arbitrage, which I mm-hmm. thought was interesting. But usually people, for lack of a better phrase, maybe you're coming, let's say, from a Western country, you have a higher standard of living. You want a Western apartment. Well, then all of a sudden, all the builders start building Western apartments. And oh, I want I want to have avocados. I want to have that. Then all of a sudden you start having that. So there's also some inflationary depression and some appreciation, right? Because inflation means the prices go up. So I don't think digital nomads think about that. And I think we we have a global responsibility to think about that. You know, we're just parking ourselves in a country because it's cheaper. I think we need to be careful about that. And I think there's going to be a lot of pushback on that, a lot of pushback on that. So I think digital nomads need to think about that. That's one thing I caution. And U.S. citizens taxed on worldwide income is a big issue. You know, it's really, you know, you can say, oh, I'm going to hang out for three, for a year. Next thing you know, it's two years or three years. So that's some of the things I I would, but in terms of reaching me and how I work with people so far, that's what it's been. If I've like, I've, if I find a lot of people speaking about credit, now I'm going to update my credit article and write some other ones because that's actually quite important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, but I think what, what's also important to recognize is that we're not the only ones. The whole world is in a place where we're all learning how to do remote work. And that also means that anybody from the world can can have access to those jobs. They can also come ah. from areas where they, you know, they wouldn't necessarily, there, you know, there wasn't a good work environment or, you know, and people from anywhere. It's not just Americans that have this new opportunity. And so there, you know, there's so much more this virtual mobility is going to provide new opportunities for a lot of people, but also new competition for a lot of people. And I think that we need to keep that in mind. When we keep just the U.S. focus, we don't realize, you know, how that that can be challenged. Because 
when you're hiring consultants, it's very different. And so companies can all of a sudden have the opportunity to hire people from different markets as consultants when they're working remotely because they're not having to physically move them. So I, I think, yes, we do. Of course, we need to be considerate of the places that we're interested in going to be mindful of being respectful of the culture, being mindful of what kinds of things we're bringing with us and what kinds mm. of things we're taking away from it. I mean, we have a place in France that we're setting up as an executive retreat center. But for me, it is so vital that part of the experience of bringing people there is teaching them the respect for the culture around them and also integrating, you know, utilizing the the local resources as part of the experience. So, you know, finding people locally that can you know, they can teach us about the, the, you know, the food and the wine and that can, you know, be the drivers and be the ones that are the service providers there rather than just coming in and saying, here we are, look at, we found this nice cheap place and we're going to bring all of our own people because each place has so much to offer and that's part of the experience. So, you know, and, and absolutely there are implications if you're, you know, if you're paying people locally, if you're, you know, if you're bringing in people, where did they get paid and all of that? So it introduces a whole nother level of complexity when you're setting up businesses abroad as well, too. But we unfortunately don't have time to get into that part today. But I just wanted to sort of make a note on that and that, that part of that mobility piece is really an appreciation for where you're going and not just like, hey, this is a cheap place to go. It's like, you know, going down to the Caribbean and being like, you know, here I can go hang out on this beach and you you need to respect the culture because there's a lot of really amazing things happening in each of those unique places. It's not just a beach. I agree. And I, I you made me think of something of when I was in Bali really quickly and I hadn't been to Bali in 20 years. A, a conference was canceled in China. So I had an extra two weeks and I rarely ever stay anywhere two weeks. But you know, I just talked about social media. And for me now, after traveling and living abroad 30 years, I understand what you're saying. And I focus more on spending time, like I'm talking to my driver in Bali. He took me to his mom's house and, you know, he's taking me to his local spots. But then there's so many people, his phone was blowing up because people wanted to talk to him and they wanted to make sure that they, he took them to all the Instagrammable places. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Right. Like I'm I'm talking to him about life and what it's like to live here and about do people pay in cash or their credit card? What do people and you know, it's just it people really do mean need to be mindful. I, I totally understand what you're saying, but it made me think about that with Instagram and going to some of the I, I got talked into going to some of these tourist sites and some of them were literally like movie sets. Yeah. With the Instagram and I'm going, Wow, okay. All right, you know, it, it's a totally different world. And you're right about the the competition. I like that one because when I lived in Shanghai and I've lived in, you know, the big money centers, it was by far the most competitive place I'd ever lived. Yeah. So I, I totally understand that. Yeah. No, I think, you know, we're, we're in for an interesting ride in so many different aspects. The world is changing and, and I think, you know, you've got to enter it with open eyes and really, you know, think about the consequences, you know, whether it's, you know, financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's, you know, just be mindful about the different moves that you make. And, and I so appreciate the work that you're doing, because I think that a lot of people do are not mindful about their finances. And, and that can really can cause major problems for them as they move along. And, 
And so I want to make sure people can find you. I will put all of your links on the uh, the show notes, but I'll also make sure that we put you in the resources page because I think your work is really, really important. And um, I just so appreciate you. So thank you so much. And thank you for sharing all of your wisdom today with our folks. It's really wonderful. It's so nice to see you again. It um, is, Heidi. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and listening to me and Feel free to refer anyone to me, any question. I'm always open, really willing and able to help. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thank you, Global Nomads, for joining us today. We really appreciate your taking the time for sitting in and listening for the whole show. And if you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming shows or check out some of our previous shows. We've had some really great visits. And if you really like the show, we always appreciate a rating and review. And please let us know if you have, because we love to give you a little love back. So thanks for joining us today. We look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now. 